Have you ever thought back on your life and noticed that there are these small moments that led you to where you are today? I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. In my new show, Breadcrumbs, I trace the pivotal moments of people's lives that lead them to where they are today. And I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. In the sunshine in this leather couch, I found my two big passions. I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And that changed my life. Through storytelling and conversation, our show traces the circuitous trail of how the creatives and intellectuals of today got to where they are. On Breadcrumbs, we'll pick up these crumbs that were left behind and see how they led us to where we are today and leading us to who we're still becoming. Take a listen to Breadcrumbs, an exciting, independently run new podcast. So my aunt, who's in the back of the church, we had no idea what was going on, comes screaming to the front of the church and casting out demons and rebuking Satan and speaking in speaking in tongues. And like, it was so, like, she was so emotionally overwhelmed by the fact that we were going to sit up there and fight in the middle of the church. So after she calmed down and the youth minister was like, no, 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 it was, it was a skit. She calmed down. But she was so upset with us for getting her so emotionally moved. And so it was, you know, it was my Spider-Man moment. It was like my Peter Parker moment, like too much is given, much is expected, right? Like, I, I think... Always, whenever I think about being a storyteller, I always kind of trace back to that moment in my mind because I realized that, A, I, I was pretty good at it in the sense of, like, I was able to convince people that this was real. And B, I realized the emotional impact and the power of storytelling and the power of creating something that wasn't real but making it real and, and the emotional impact it could have on people. I'm Alan Brooks, and this is my podcast, Breadcrumbs. I talk to professionals and creatives from all over the world about the most pivotal moments in their lives. So let's go break some bread. Today, our guest is Logan Coles, who's a Hollywood movie producer. He was writing partners and best friends with Chadwick Boseman, and they produced films such as 21 Bridges together. He started down this path when he faked a punch in church and witnessed the power of storytelling in real life. He and I worked together when I was at the Kennedy Center, and he's one of those people that I just became great friends with almost immediately. Logan is one of those people that, so I got to know Logan when I hired him to produce some video content for me when I was working at the Kennedy Center. And he is one of those people where he and I got in the room together and, it, and just something clicked. There was that like friend chemistry that exists in, in very few of us, right? And especially as an adult, it's harder and harder to make friends and it's harder and harder to find friends. And Logan and I like got in the same room and it was just like, Oh, you're the same kind of weird as me. We're best friends now forever. And that's, I think that's partially due to the fact that he and I share a lot of the same interests. We come from not terribly dissimilar backgrounds, but most importantly, I think it's because he is such a lovely, kind hearted, open man who is so willing to be those things with strangers and be those things with anyone he meets, right? He's one of those people that, like, you don't feel like he cares about you. He does legitimately care about you. He wants to know about you. He wants to know your story. He wants to, he holds eye contact. He does all that stuff where it's like, oh, you give a shit about me as another human being. And he's got such a cool background. 
you know, he and Chadwick Boseman were writing partners and best friends from their days at Howard together. And some of Chad's best work was because Logan's influence and, you know, they, they wrote some incredible stuff together and he basically like discovered creative work early and was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do forever. And he did. And that's awesome. Yeah, he's very he's very rarely afraid of something that I, I think is what is going to not only provide people some satisfaction in this conversation. And as you go and, and seek out Logan's work and you should, I think it's what's going to have us still talking about Logan's work in 20 and 30 and 40 years is that. You know, he's not a flash in the pan creator of, you know, things that are the fastest way to the highest profit. It's how can I do something good with this platform that I've been given and not just good for the audiences, but he, you know, he gives back, he speaks at panels. He goes back to Howard all the time. He's working on Chad's foundation. He's just, you know, he just cares about making the world better because he gets to be a part of it for a while. And that's, that's rare. And I'm so excited and I wish I could go back and I'm getting weepy even just talking about him. So I'm going to stop talking now and then we can break some bread. I think I might have been around 10 and, you know, I grew up in this very evangelical church community. So we were in church like all the time, like we would have 9 a.m. Bible study, 10 a.m. church. We would get out at two o'clock. We go home and eat dinner and we come back at six o'clock for nighttime service. And then we had like Wednesday catechism, Friday night children's ministry. It was just like we were in church all the time. And so to spice things up, I guess, like we had this youth pastor, like this, this youth minister that, that led our Sunday school. And so to spice things up, he was like, you know, we're going to do a skit. And I don't even remember what the lesson was we were supposed to learn from the skit. But the whole idea was me and this other member of the church, this young guy, we were going to we were supposed to collect the offering. And once we got to the front, you know, you take the offering and you kind of take both of the, the offering plates and you dump them into a big offering plate. And so the whole thought was we were going to fight over who was going to uh, take the big offering plate to the back of the church. Why? I don't know. But but I, having a flair for the dramatic, was like, all right, cool. I have to make this a performance of a lifetime. Like, this was my Oscar-winning performance as Sunday school student who fights uh, over an offering. So somehow I got my hands on some food coloring. And I put the food color in my mouth and I told the other guy, I said, this is what we're going to do, man. We should make it look really real. I want you to punch me, right? I'm going to take the hit and then I'm going to squeeze the food coloring in my mouth and the blood's going to come out. And I said, it's perfect, man. I was like, man, I I don't know. That was just, I was so excited. And so I think the youth pastor told my mom because he didn't want me to get into trouble, but I don't think he told, he didn't tell anybody else in the church what was going on. So go through the process. I collect the offering. We get to the front and on cue, he's like, and he didn't hit me hard, but he caught me. He caught me. He definitely caught me. But I, I fell and I squeezed the, the food color in my mouth and like blood, didn't look like blood flew out. So my aunt who's in the back of the church, who had no idea what was going on, comes screaming to the front of the church and casting out demons and rebuking Satan and speaking in speaking in tongues. And like, it was so... Like she was so emotionally overwhelmed by the fact that we were going to sit up there and fight in the middle of church. And he was going to punch me. And 
So after she calmed down and the minister was like, no, 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 it was, it was a skit. She calmed down. But she was so upset with us for getting her so emotionally moved. And so it was, you know, it was my Spider-Man moment. It was like my Peter Parker moment, like too much is given, much is expected, right? Like I, I think always, whenever I think about being a storyteller, I always kind of trace back to that moment in my mind because I realized that, A, I, I was pretty good at it in the sense of like, I was able to convince people that this was real. And B, I realized the emotional impact and the power of storytelling and the power of creating something that wasn't real, but making it real and, and the emotional impact it could have on people. And, you know, I think about my aunt and how moved she was. And I, you know, I, I felt bad, but I also, it, it was a lesson for me because it was like, you know, there's something really powerful to the storytelling and something really powerful to the ability to move people to emotions and move people to speak in tongues uh, and curse demons and rebuke Satan. So, you know, that was one of my earlier memories of being a performer. So, You've been this play the whole time. This is who you are, right? This, this. You're basically saying I've been an asshole my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so I, so I don't think there's anything assholeish about what you were trying to do, trying to accomplish. You were trying to be a storyteller, right? You were trying to create a a moment. You were trying to show the your church that there was a lesson to be learned from these young men telling a story. That's yeah, what you're doing yeah. still. I guess. Yeah, I guess. I, I'm like, I don't even remember what the lesson was, right? That's a funny part of it. <laughs> but you remember like the impact. Share the offering. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do remember the impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, so how quickly did you learn that lesson? Was that something you reflected on a few years later? I'm like, oh man, I, I've been doing this for a while. Or was it like, were you able to at 10 or 11 kind of have a moment to, to realize what was going on around you? You know, I think I, I realized it in a, from an emotional standpoint, like I was emotionally moved that she was moved, right? So I don't think I, right. like I knew the power of it in that moment, but I didn't understand it, right? Like I knew it was something powerful, but I don't think I, I had to live a little bit more and understand a little bit more to know what that was, but I know I felt it, right? Like I felt yeah. something in that moment that, I, you know, that's why, you know, I think, we all remember emotions. I'm always like emotions are what take me into different memories. And so I think the emotional, the emotionality of that moment and the kind of actually the spiritual nature of that moment, like it was really spiritually impactful. And so I think I felt it in that moment, but I didn't realize what it was until later, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. Until you had the cut, you were able to, to look back at with the context of maturity and, and kind of recognize what was going on. Yeah. So you were 10 or 11 when this happened. Were you already pursuing creativity or performance or, you know, or that kind of work outside of church? Yeah. In some ways, I mean, it was, I was always writing. I, I knew mm -hmm. I was drawn to, to writing early on. Like I would write poetry. Like I still have <laughs> On my desk, I had this terrible poem that I wrote in like 92, I think. But it's this terrible poem that I, that I wrote. My dad framed it. It's crazy. Like, it, I, like I wrote it on this pink piece of paper randomly because I think that was the only piece of paper. But I typed it. So I think my grandmother had a typewriter. So it's written and like it has grammatical errors. And so I went back with the pencil and rewrote the grammatical errors. But, it, you know, I keep it on my desk because it's a reminder of how bad my writing used to be. 
And, and so it's very humbling to, to reflect on, right? But then I also keep it on my desk because the poem was about like empowering black people and wanting, you know, people to be liberated. And, you know, that was where my mind was even at 12, right? It's like, you know, trying to trying to liberate people and, and all that stuff. And so it's also a reminder of that for me, like, you know, I like stay true to, to the mission and stay true to like using art to be a vehicle for liberation, right? And so but it's really bad. <laughs> it's like remarkably well, bad. Okay, that's not fair. Okay, that's remarkably that, bad. Allow me to defend 12 year old Logan for a second. Please, follow me. Everything 12 year olds do is, is terrible. <laughs> okay, that's not, that's not on you. Listen, the art I was making at 12, are you kidding? Ugh, it was straight up trash. But then, but, but then our parents tell us how great we are, right? Like, that's the funny thing, right? Like our parents are like, oh my God, it's so amazing. How did you do this? And da 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 da. And you're like, thanks, man. Like, you know, you look back at it as an adult, you're like, my parents lied to me for the earlier part of my life about my talent level. You know? It's about context, though. It's not, <laughs> yeah. your parents weren't lying to you. For a 12 year old, it was probably fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, it was. You have to do that. I mean, you know, we're both parents now and, and, you know, we both got kids at different ages, but like you have to encourage and also teach the appropriate level of self-criticism and all that stuff. And it's really hard because when you're 10, 11, 12, you're also going through an extraordinary amount of emotional changes, feelings about your art. You're defining yourself as an artist in a lot of ways then. I mean, to your point, like, you know, you produce the movie 21 Bridges and a lot of themes in that are about how black officers are treated in law enforcement. And that's a theme that, you know, you can tie back to 12 year old Logan writing that. And when you were producing that and when you were working through that, you and I had a lot of talks about that. I mean, let's like, let's get into that a little bit. We talked about how you had to be the voice for that on set and as rewrites were happening. And and can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I see an intrinsic tie between that and the work you're you're doing. When we first got that script, It was a good script. It was a very, like, you know, genre movie. You know, hey, this cop has to lock down this, you know, Island of Manhattan to find these, you know, criminals or whatever. But the main character who was played by Chadwick Boseman was Irish, I think. Or, you know, like he was written as a white guy. And none of the characters... Oh, and, and Chad Boseman, famously a an Irish Yeah, guy. right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No? No. <laughs> but that was the whole, the whole script was, I think... No one was of That's color. Insane. I think it was literally pretty much all straight white men, right? So, A, because that was playing the character, we knew we had to change that part of it, right? But that has to, you know, filtrate through the whole script. And so, literally, we sat in, you know, we went to the, the Russo Brothers company, Agbo. We sat in their conference room with the writer and with Joe and Anthony and the director, Brian. And we sat there for like three days and literally went page by page on the script and we put it on the big screen and we all kind of just had the conversation and went like scene by scene, note by note and said, hey, how can we make this better? You know, you can't make a movie about, you know, a black cop that's investigating cop killers that likes to shoot people. You know, that's he's known for shooting people. Right. You can't make that film. And I think we were shooting it in 2018. You can't make it with the context of 2018 without addressing the elephant in the room like, you know. But the, the thing for us was the movie's not about that. The movie's not about the elephant in the room, but you have to acknowledge the elephant in the room, right? But it's informed and you can't by let, it. Sure. It's informed by it, right? But you can't let it take over the, the, the movie. And so it was a very interesting dance of like, okay, how do we articulate this in a way that allows us to be conscientious filmmakers, right? Like that are creating this art in this world that we live in in 2018 at the time, but also not allow that to drive the story, right? Like, you know, 
Mm-hmm. So that was the dance. We went. And then I think part of what we did was because you're dealing with cops and we live in America and there's a very real dynamic about who who are cops, who are criminals, what is justice. We started really thinking about how do you cast the characters in a way that their race doesn't dictate the interaction with the justice system, right? And so that's why we cast Stefan James and Taylor Kitsch as the bad guys, right? Because you have a black bad guy and a white bad guy, right? You're not trying to say something about color. You're saying something about crime, right? Whereas if all the cops are white and all the criminals were black, you're making a societal statement about crime and and, and right. who's, who's cops and who's trying to prevent crime and who's criminals and who's creating and, and perpetuating crime, right? And so that was a conscious decision in that room to say, hey, in order for this not to be, a, in order for it not to be about color, then we have to make both, you know, one black bad, bad, bad guy, one white bad guy, right? The cops were, you know, multiracial, right? Because that reflects society, right? The, you know, like right. reality is there are black cops, there are white cops. There are black criminals, there white criminals, there's Spanish criminals, there's Asian criminals, right? Like, and so sure. when you cast and reflect the, the diversity of society, every character is not representative, right? They're not, you're, you're not an archetype for black people, you know, I, you know, you're the character, you know what I mean? And so there, there was just a lot of that going on in that process of wanting to be conscious storytellers, you know, of color as black men, but also wanting to serve the story and not letting that overtake the narrative. It's interesting because if you look back at your entire, your pathway, right? If, we, if we're taking your breadcrumbs bit by bit and you go back to performing at church, being a 12-year-old awful poet who, who has distinct themes, though, in the poetry that you're writing that are informed by your experience as a, as a 12-year-old black kid, then, you know, that theme and and the struggle that you were trying to identify or explore in your artwork shows up again in in college yeah you decide to end up to to pursue performance and you pursue acting i don't know if i knew that up until like my senior year of high school that i wanted to be an actor right like before, like oh, interesting. for okay. me, for me, I was like, I was going to be an NFL all-star wide receiver and a lawyer. Like that. in my mind, you know, on the other side, like, even though the 12 year old me was writing and, and writing poetry off of poetry or whatever, in my mind, I was hmm. going to play football and be a lawyer. Right. And so. Oh, two things that have nothing to do with performance at all, Logan. They don't, they don't, they actually, <laughs> they, they don't, they don't, nah. No, 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 no. It's, yeah, you don't want to be in front of a courtroom of people or a stadium full of people, you know, showing off what you're capable of doing and then getting thunderous applause. I see what Were you going to be a defense attorney or what kind of what kind of lawyer did you want to be? I see what you're doing here. I think I want to be the lawyer <laughs> that I saw on, on L.A. Law. <laughs> That's what oh, I was nice. like. I, nice. I was like Jimmy Smith's. Blair Underwood, right? And Blair Underwood, right? Like those were the dudes. I was like, I'm going to be like those dudes. And I'm going to be like, I object your honor, right? Like that's what I saw in my mind. So yes, I guess it was performative. (laughs) But you pursue that, right? You. So my aunt was a lawyer in New Prince, Virginia. So all my dad's family is from Virginia. Shout out to Christopher Newport University. So my aunt, who's one of the most brilliant people I ever knew, 
was a lawyer in the news, and she was she did a lot of family law and like guardian at uh, I think guardian ad litem is the, the right term, where she would basically be the court representative for like foster kids or kids that were in you know ACS and stuff like that. And so it, I mean, just just a brilliant human being, and just like so. I think it was spring break in my seventh grade year. I had ambitions of being Blair Underwood and Jimmy Smith in, in LA Law. And so my aunt is like, come work with me for your spring break. And so I was like, yeah, like I ironed my suit. I think I had a nice tie. I was like, I was going to go perform. And realized very quickly that her life didn't, you know, it wasn't a lot of in court, I object your honor. It was a lot of sitting in an office and filing paperwork and, you know, going to get lunch. And like, even when we went to court, it was, it wasn't LA law. It was very much. Not as not sad is the wrong word, but it definitely procedural because she was dealing with, you know, children that were, you know, abused or in situations where, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't being taken care of. You know what I mean? Like it just it broke my heart. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I just admired her so much for doing it because she like day in and day out was like literally going in and saving these kids lives. So I think the heft of that, is, as well as it wasn't as performative as L.A. law. And, you know, I, I, the majority of my time was actually spent like going to get subway for lunch and like filing, um, paperwork. I was like, I don't think this is for me anymore. I'm Sharon. And she completely understood. It's funny. Most people that are like doctors or lawyers, like absolutely discourage their kids from doing it. <laughs> it's like, you don't want to, I know it looks fancy, but, and so she was completely supportive of me kind of pivoting. And so throughout high school, I still thought I wanted to be, yeah. you know, a football player. I don't You're know. still going to be in the NFL. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to the NFL. And then I think my junior year of high school, my brother, who's an actor, a brilliant actor, joined the drama club or theater at school. And I mm-hmm. he was the only black kid. It might've been one of the black kid in there. And I kind of just was like, whatever. I was like, oh, here's go. There's Peyton hanging with the weird kids again. Right. Cause he was always eccentric and playing, you know, piano. And he was just an eccentric dude. But it started looking cool. Like he, he would tell me about the stuff they were doing in class. And then I met the <laughs> drama teacher, shout out to Miss Karen Wade. Um, you know, drama teachers are some of the, like the most special human beings on earth because you know, they take all You're the just saying that together. Huh? I appreciate it. I know I pre as a former drama teacher, I appreciate the shout out. I mean, it, you know, the, I the, see myself as truthfully, probably the most important person to a number of children's lives. As, as you tell them, don't, don't <laughs> fuck it up when they go on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, but you found the theater department where the that's where all the weird kids are. That's where all the the fun kids are. That's where like who are the those rare children who are able to know who they are at 16 find themselves kind of glomming together around the arts, right? You've got the kids who are in theater and music and dance and it's where the weirdos live. So you so your brother was one of them and drew you My in. My brother was one of them. He was one of them. And it was crazy because you really do. And I reflect on it now, realizing how brave some of those kids were. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the other thing that, that I remember doing and, and falling in love with in, in high school theater was August Wilson. Right. Because, you know, you, you're you're one of the few, you know, black kids and you wanted to do yeah. something that was culturally, you know, finding all these really great August Wilson monologues and just falling in love with the written word in a way that 
you know, just affirmed me as a human being, right? Affirmed the people that I knew that I knew, you know, that sounded like my uncle, it sounded like my grandfather. And so it was just very affirming to find that and be like, oh man, like I can, you know, like I think I was more in love with the written word than even the performative part, you know, even knowing it then, right? Mm -hmm. So fast forward, I ended up going to Howard because I, I was like, I wanted to, like throughout high school, I went to a predominantly, I, I guess it was like 60, 40 white, black, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I found myself to be one of the few black kids in like honors or AP classes, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you you felt the weight of being the representative of black people, right? You felt the weight of having to be the smart black kid to prove that black kids were smart. Like even, the, even at that age, I felt that because I was the only one in the room, right? And I was like, oh man, if I fail this test, I'm going to make black people look terrible. The weight of the nation was, was on say, my that's, shoulders. That's I a lot for a, black people aren't stupid. That's a lot for a 17 year old kid, man. You know, dude, it was, it was weighty, bro. The, the, it was weighty. The entire uh, intelligence is on your shoulders. The future of black intelligentsia is on my shoulders. So you knew you wanted to go to an HBCU or a, a, a more minority rich environment for college. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. 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 I just, I wanted, I wanted to have an environment for my college experience where I wasn't the only smart black kid in the room. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I, I didn't want, I, I didn't want to feel that weight of having to be the representative of black excellence in the academic space. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I was just like, I just want, and then once I visited Howard and went to the theater department and saw like, you know, the bookshelf had Shakespeare and Beckett and Pinter, but it also had August Wilson and Woody King Jr. and Ed Bullins and Amiri Baraka. And it had like, it, it, it was so like, oh, yo, this is what I, you know, I thought August Wilson was the shit, you know, right. and just realizing there's all these other black playwrights and Lorraine Hansberry, like all this other black artistic experience and tradition. So once I saw that, and, and uh, to be honest, there were a lot of pretty girls on campus, <laughs> so that, that got me as well. And I met Al Freeman Jr., who was the chair of the department at the time. So anybody that doesn't know Al Freeman Jr., yeah, amazing stage and television actor. But he also, famously for me, for a lot of people, he played Elijah Muhammad and Spike Lee's ex. Yeah. And so I remember going into his office, he had, he had the shades down and it was like this really dramatic space. And he, you know, this thing back then you could smoke inside and smoking. He used to have these, he was the guy that had cigarettes, but he had a filter that he would put on them. Oh, yeah. So they'd be super long. And so I think he's going to sound like Elijah Muhammad. His voice sounds like this, Malcolm, you need to uh, <laughs> learn about his mind. And so I'm thinking that's how he's going to sound, right? Like that's how he sounds in my head because I just remember him as Elijah Muhammad. And so I walk into his office and he made my mom like stay in the lobby and he told me to come in. This is right before I decided to go to Howard. Miss Cole, Miss Cole. He talked like this, a real rambling voice. Miss Cole, come out. Why the hell you want to be an actor? And I was like, uh, is this my Elijah Muhammad Malcolm X woman? Like it was so it's a it was surreal because like it was like a scene, like it was like him smoking a cigarette, yeah. and the shades were drawn and it just felt like a mafia movie in some sense. Like he was like, you know, I was asking to become a part of his, you know, his mafia family, which kind of I was in some sense. Hashtag Howard Mafia. And, and I just remember being like, I want to come study under this man. You know what I mean? Like I, it was really my life. Muhammad, Muhammad, one. Like I was like, I, I you know, and once I got to know him more, he would just talk, like he would talk so much shit. 
but he loved acting and he loved exposing young people to it, you know, to the craft and, you know, telling us, fuck being famous, you know, you know, like, don't do this for fame. You know what I mean? I remember one time I had like gotten cornrows back when I had hair, I got cornrows I remember and, tea, and I was like, I thought I was the shit. And I remember him stopping me one time. He was like, Mr. Carl, come here. Yeah. I want you to go cut all that shit off your face and figure out who you really are. And I was like, uh, 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 okay. Right. And, and, and so he was, he would do shit like that randomly. Like literally he was like, yeah, hey, you know, figure out who you really are. You know, you're trying to be cool. You get to go tea in your face. And I call all that shit off and figure out who you really are. I'm just call. That's great. I mean, you need those mentors and those people who give you that check right at that age. So he knew what he was doing. Right. Cause you mentioned the Howard mafia and that's a, a very real thing. Right. You and I got to know each other when I was working at the Kennedy Center and I hired you to be a director on a set. And I want to talk about that, too, because I've seen you work as a running a set. And I think there's a important thing to get back there there. But when we would just be hanging out and talking, you would be like, oh, yeah, this person, that person, this person. And your class at Howard, that era of Howard has had an extraordinary influence on media and culture writ large. I mean, from Chadwick to Camila running the Apollo, like it's no joke. How does that happen? How does a crew of people come together at, at that moment? Did you know who you were around? Yeah. I mean, I, I knew they were dope as hell the first time I met all of them. Bradford Young, Rafi Rivero. They were all these, you know, I don't think we kind of could have predicted the level of success a lot of them have had, you know what I mean? Specifically Chad, you know what I mean? Like I don't think you, I don't think even he kind of knew, but I think we just knew that we wanted to create a, and we wanted to be around dope people that were creating. Right. And and so, you know, that energy just builds, you know, upon itself. It was such a wild time, man. It's crazy. It's like, you know, that was 20 something years ago. and, And yeah, yeah, it was just an extraordinary time. So I just remember being like, man, these these people are dope. And I just want to, I want to be around them. Yeah. Like I had saw, uh, Chad and Camila had written this play called Rhyme Deferred, which was like one of the early hip hop theater pieces. And I remember watching it and being like, yo, this is the illest shit I've ever seen in my life. Because it was like, it was Shakespeare and meets Nas, you know, over a Jay Dilla beat. You know what I mean? It was like Coltrane's Love Supreme to me, right? right? Like listening to it was like spiritual experience. Watching it was a spiritual experience for me. And I remember being like, I don't know who these MFers are, but I want to be down with them. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And that's how it started. I just would, you know, befriend them and like, you know, help out on their different productions. And I joined the repertory company, the Hip Hop Theater Junction, and we would do plays, you know what I mean? You and and your contemporaries, basically, apart from a couple of people from outside the How- the immediate Howard community, basically defined hip hop theater in the early two thousands, right? I mean, you know, I would say them in the mid to late nineties, late nineties. Yeah. I, I I will not take any credit for that. I was just I was a part of the experience. I but yeah, I was definitely a part of it. They were doing Hamilton before Hamilton, but there's so many cats. You know, Mark Bamuti, mm-hmm. Will Power. There's so many people that were a part of that community between DC and New York that were creating in the hip hop theater aesthetic. And I mean, so much so that Camila went on with Nikea Brown and Clyde um, Valentine to found the hip hop theater festival in New York. And so from like 2000 to 2009, I think 
they, they, they were the facilitators of all things hip hop theater. And like Lin-Manuel, I think came yeah. through them at some point, Lemon, you know, all the people that you saw on Def Poetry Jam, Camille was a producer on that as well. So there, it was just, it was just a cool time to be doing, to be creating art and, and, and to create, you know, art and hip hop theater aesthetic, man. It was just, it was an incredible time. And so at the same time I was doing that, I also met Brad for Young oh, in, sure. the, in the film department at Howard. Right. And so got put on to, to Haile Garima. Right. And so I, I, you know, as I was, you know, like the way Howard is set up, right. The fine arts is at the top of the hill and communications is kind of like down the hill. So literally I would go back and yeah. forth up and down the hill collaborating with, you know, different, you know, folks. And so and you ended up with such a, a, an amazing time. You ended up getting a film major. You moved, you changed from acting to film. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but I, but I think, you know, you, you said something when you were talking about being a part of the hip hop theater community, that it was, you were just happy to be there to be collaborating with that. And I think that, that, you know, the times that we've worked together and the times that I've seen you work, your, your ability to thrive in that collaborative art making space. It, it sounds like that's where it really got started was in college, was in university, was being in that place where you are coming together around an idea of creation and whether you are steering the ship or you're just, you know, working in the engine room or you're just making dinner for people, you just needed to be a part of that collaborative art making. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Because what you realize is that as you're figuring out what your voice is, it's good to be around people that sing in the harmony that you want to be in, right? That Like know how to sing the song that you want to sing, right? And so, you know, I just was around folks that were, that, that happened to be beatboxing and rapping, like I wanted to rap, you know what I mean? Like, and so, it, you know, as I was figuring out how to rap or how to write the way I wanted to write, it was important for me to be around people that were doing it at a high level, right? Mm -hmm. And that was what Camila and Chad and Brad learned from Haile Garima, you know, they, they were creating, you know, this black visual aesthetic that I thought was just like the craziest, illest thing mm -hmm. I'd ever seen. Like, you know, people know Bradford's visual style now, but like, even then yeah. he was incredible. Like even then he was doing shit with the camera and with lighting and photography that I was like, how that? Yo. And, and so I would just, I, you know, I just wanted to be around it. And I, and I think by being around it, A, I became a better artist, but B, it fostered those friendships, right? Because we all became friends because of the art. Yeah. You know what I mean? We were drawn together because of the of wanting to create dope art, right? Like we weren't just like, you know, hanging on the yard and being like, yo, let's, you know, smoke a blunt and be friends. Like that just wasn't what it was. We were like literally coming together because of the work. And so it wasn't, it, it's what sustained, it's what brought us together. It's what sustained us because we just loved doing yeah. it, man. It was like, you know, we were doing it, you know, 15 hours a day free. Yeah. So when people started paying us to do this shit, we were like, I think we got the cheat code on this, man. Like, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> don't tell me. <laughs> right. It, it was one of those, like, you know, it, it, it's crazy. You know, even to this day, man, I, I feel like I've been, you know, I got the cheat code because I feel like I haven't, you know, since my career at Nickelodeon, I feel like I haven't worked another day in my life. Okay. Your you career know, at Nickelodeon, you know I mean? we're just going to bury it. We're just going to to leave that. So you. Bury the leave. So, bury the leave. Well, so, so how do you get from, you are in college, you're a film major, 
you go out into the world. You know, so that's you the interesting thing, right? Like in the, the reason Acapulco? why I changed my major. So my the end of my sophomore year, I was I was a, I was an acting major my first few years, right? So the end of my sophomore year, loved acting, loved the department, loved everything about theater, but I knew I wanted to do film. Like I knew I wanted to explore what a, how to you know kind of lens to put on the camera, how to light you know cinematography. So I started just kind of exploring, and at that time, Bill Duke was the endowed chair of the film department. So I, I went down the hill, I would listen to Bill Duke talk and, you know, he would just, I, I just, you know, was in awe, man, you know, and, and I, it was another kind of the same moment I had with Al Freeman. Right. And that's the cool thing about Howard, right. Is it always attracts, you know, folks come back to share with young artists that are working at a high level. Al Freeman was working at a high level at that time, but he came back and was still teaching. Right. Bill Duke was working at a high level at that time, but he came back and was still teaching. Like he had, you know, I think, it just on Hoodlum and Sister Act 2. And like he was a Hollywood movie director that was like, I'm gonna take right. time to fly to DC, right? To 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 teach these, you know, these film students. And so I was just enamored with him the same way I was enamored with Al. And so that summer after my sophomore year, I was supposed to go study Shakespeare at Oxford because that's what you know theater students did. We all kind of went to Oxford, did a summer at Oxford to study. I don't know if it's because I just sucked and bombed my audition or it's because I turned, I didn't turn my paperwork in until the day of the audition. So maybe that's what it, so I didn't get into the safety. I, but the crazy thing is I had gotten this study abroad scholarship for that summer. Cause I applied for the scholarship at the same time that I was going to do the uh, Oxford audition, whatever. So oh, it was I, separate than the, so the scholarship wasn't tied to the Oxford thing. No, it was just it, go somewhere else. Yeah, it was, it was just a study abroad scholarship that, that the university gave Got out. Got it. Uh, and so I remember writing this, like, I gotta find that. I had written this kind of parable about my life, but I had kind of like written it through the lens of like, because I, I, in my mind, I was going to Oxford. So I had written it through the lens of like a Shakespearean play. So it was like, you know, this young man was born in the township of Washington, District of Columbia, huh. to a queen who was, and it was like, it, it, but it was, it was really well done. For, you know, at that point, I was a better writer. It was really yeah, well done. I mean, I'm sure for, it was ex for, excellent. For, for, for 20 year old. It was, it was way better than the 12 year old writing. I'll say that. Right. And so I got this. <laughs> and I, and, and so I got the scholarship, but I didn't get into to Oxford. Right. So I was like, shit. But I just, I met Bill Duke at that time. He was doing an actor's boot camp at the Acapulco black film festival. Uh, and he was telling students, Hey, if you can get to Acapulco, which most college students couldn't, uh, then you can come, you know, mm -hmm. intern for me. And so I was like, I have a $5,000 check to study abroad. It's not Oxford, but it is connected to the university. It is an acting program. And so I convinced my mom, my mom was like, yep, yep. Go for it. And we, so we went online, we bought, but her only, her only caveat was like, you can't go to Mexico by yourself. You have to take your brother with you. Right. And, and you know, it's classic <laughs> mom stuff. And she was like, yeah, you can go, but you got to take your brother with you. But I was like, you know, whatever. Like it was, it was, I was more than happy. Yeah. And so we went to, we, we had bought two plane tickets to Acapulco, bought two festival passes, but I think we only had enough money for the hotel for like four days. And we were staying for seven, right? <laughs> but only 20 year olds do shit like this. I don't know what I was thinking going into that, <laughs> like going to a whole nother country with only enough money to live for four of the seven days. 
So we get there. You figure it out? We did, right? Like, you know, we get there and it was an amazing experience, man. Like life, life transforming experience. And, you know, so much so that I, you know, it was like, this, I think is the, the pivot for me, right? Um, and then maybe this guy telling me I'm not supposed to be an actor because I can't get into Oxford. So, but yeah, I just, it was, I was down there and there were so many, there were these two young filmmakers that were, you know, not much older than me, but they had won the award of the festival, Carl Seaton and Kenny Young, still two of the coolest cats of the day. But I remember watching this movie they had down there called One Week. And it was about this dude, like this is two, 2000. Um, so right at the height of, you know, the AIDS epidemic, right? And they had made yeah. this movie about this young, young black dude in Chicago who found out a girl that he used to date was HIV positive a week before his wedding. And it's all this stuff ensues. But it was like, I remember sitting there and watching that movie and being so moved by it and moved by what they were able to do and and uncomfortable by it because you know you know at that point in time like you know age was the boogie monster to everybody like they didn't have the same anti you yeah. know viral drugs or the, the type of drugs that are in existence now to let people live a normal life with it that was a death sentence back then and it was the scariest shit they could ever have. so the fact that they were brave enough to take on that subject matter and do it in a way that was so profound. Like I just had this the, the moment of being like, like, man, like, and then they won the festival that year. And I remember meeting them and being like, yo, like I'm looking at my brother, like, yo, like them dudes are not that much older than us, dude. Like we can do this shit, man. And it was so that's awesome. powerful moving. And it was just so cool because at that time the festival was in Acapulco. And so there was like the community of people that came were for the film festival and everybody else was just, you know, so you would go to a party and you'd be standing next to, you know, Denzel Washington, Lorraine State, Holly Berry. Like everybody did, you know, panels together. We had meals together. We partied together. And it was such an amazing experience and like kind of an entree into the world of, you know, filmmaking and, and Hollywood that I was like, yeah, I flew back. <laughs> I flew back. Well, first off, we, we uh, every yeah. day, every day, I, <laughs> after we didn't have enough. How did days five, days, six and seven go? I, <laughs> So my brother, who didn't have a care in the world, would like be partying until like 4 a.m. But I had to get up every morning to go be at Bill Duke's boot camp at 8 a.m. So I would wake up at 7 and I'd be at the manager's in the hotel's office at 7.30 pleading with her, Miss Martinez, please, I promise you, let's just get my dad on the phone. He's going to send us some money. I promise you, we have, we, don't kick us out the hotel. And so every morning we would call my dad and God bless my old man because he played right along the whole time. He was like, son, I got, the money's coming. Uh, let me just make one more phone call. Miss Martinez, yeah, it's oh coming. My God. The on his way. Don't even, don't, the guys are fine. So I did that for three days. Right. Like, and then by the third day, I, I think my debt was, oh my God. was like $1,400 that, that we had to pay. And so somehow. Frank Coles isn't doing that. Yo, but, but no, he, he, I think he ended up borrowing the money from somebody or he, he like pulled it out of some random savings or somehow my dad said that's $1,400 that allowed that woman to oh let us God. stay in that hotel and leave. Uh, otherwise we might've been in Mexican prison. And he always goes to this day. He's like, man, I can't let y'all go to jail in Mexico, man. I couldn't let y'all go to jail in Mexico, man. That would have been oh, terrible. That would have been terrible. Uh, so God bless my mom for making me take my brother and sending me. And God bless my father for making sure I can come home. You know what I mean? Um, oh my God. So yeah, man, it, it was just such a, a remarkable experience. And, and, and I learned so much watching Bill Duke interact with the actors. And I said, yeah, this is what I, I, I want to do. And so I, yeah. I, I flew back and I said, mommy, 
changed my major. And I changed my major to film. But, you know, I still wanted to know how to be, I, I wanted to, I, I still didn't have to let go of the idea that I wanted to be an actor. Like I still hadn't let go of that, but I, I knew I wanted to do other things too. And so yeah. I still took all my acting classes. I, I still take on, you know, like I took all my playwriting classes. I still was a, like I was, I ended up getting a theater arts minor. I took all as many of my theater credits as I could take. And I just, just increased my workload. Like I think I was like taking between 19 and 21 hours the last four semesters of college. Yeah. Cause I had, I had to, I had to make sure I could still graduate on time after changing my major. So I just, I just doubled up and, you know, did what I had to do. But yeah, that's incredible. It's really interesting to have known you for as long as I have after you already had a career as a filmmaker for, so we met in 2000, call it 2010, mm-hmm. 2011. Mm-hmm. You've been working for a decade before that. You had a job, you, you were at Viacom for six years. Was that basically like make the donuts, learn the craft kind of work? Just learn the, how to get a, a shoot it was done on time that, under man. budget, it, that it kind was, of stuff. You know, I, mean, I like to say that Nickelodeon was my grad school. Like I got a grad school degree in, in mm. television production, right? By working at Nickelodeon. Yeah. Because it was all of that, man. It was the nuts and bolts of producing. It was funny. I was just having a conversation with somebody yesterday who worked at, at Lauren Michaels company, which is next door to where I worked. And we would edit that Broadway video all the time. But, you know, I started being the guy that slept the digibaters in these plastic bags through Times Square in the snow to take them to edit sessions to, you know, to produce an edit sessions. So, I mean, you know, back then everything was these huge digibaters, right? So we mastered on digibater, we delivered on digibater, anything that backups were all digibated. So digibated is huge, right? Like you know, with big tape. So yeah. you'd have these big bags of digibaters and you'd be like, I think about Times Square in the winter, the, the black uh, slushy snow, when you step off the sidewalk, like it was like navigating yeah. tourists. So that's how I started there. But, you know, I was there and I, I I moved up throughout, you know, the years, you know, from PA to associate producer to producer to senior producer. And it was such a cool time because it was the early 2000s. And we were I worked for Noggin in the camp, which is like Nickelodeon Digital. So it was like higher up in the cable stratosphere. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing was it was a small digital network that was a part of a big behemoth. So kind of they let, just let us do our thing, man. Like, you know, we were able to just be creative and just like anything like if we would tell jokes at the, you know at lunch or something we're like that would be a cool idea if we just go pitch it to the vp and just go you know shoot it right you know give us thirty thousand dollars and say hey go make that you know make that interstitial so it was just such a great time to be learning and creating in television man because we were able to be under the umbrella of the bohemians but not be beholden to like you know big nick that way yeah. So, yeah, I just spent six years, man, learning television production, learning, but, you know, being a better storyteller, shooting a whole lot, like, you know, because they knew I want, you know, that I was a producer, but I, you know, I love directing. Like I was like, I want to direct. So anytime that there was an opportunity to shoot, they were like, they gave me that assignment. You know, I was around some really, really great creators that were like helping me become a better creative. That's a theme that I think, you know, has permeated everything right if you look back at all of these if, even even going all the way back to the beginning of this conversation when you were talking about being in church you were working on something with a friend mm-hmm. right like you can't not be collaborative yeah right yeah and you found yourself in these spaces where whether it was it was in high school at the th- joining the theater club or if it was in college you know with with the crew that you were in school with to 
working at the end and and then you know you and chad writing movies together and then whenever i was on when i was either working with you like properly working with you i've never seen you more as as much as i enjoy hanging out with you and as much as i enjoy you know driving around atlanta at three in the morning and <laughs> hanging out in bars in new york like i as much as i love doing those things with you i've never seen you more comfortable than when you're on set in one way or another, mm -hmm. when you are either producing and you've got a thousand things to, to answer to or run around and talk about, or when you're directing and you've got the, the, the vision of the moment in front of you, I think that's, what's so, so exciting to see. And I think you can track really easily that that's where you live is when you're creating something with other people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's where it, that's where Logan's like, to sound as pretentious as is humanly possible. Like that's where your, your bliss is. That's where your joy is, is that, that moment of creation with other people. You know, my brother, you were never going to be writing poetry I by yourself in a room. And those kind of concrete of terms, but you're right, man. Like, you know, that's why writing now is it's been liberating, but I'm so used to sitting in a room with Chad and writing, yeah. like and bouncing ideas off of each other and being like, yo, what if he said, and then, you know, watching him, like, you know, fall asleep and think he's falling asleep and then he'd wake up and be like, yo, I got this idea. And he's like, you weren't just sleeping, dude, right? So, yeah, it, it's, it's such a, I just thrive off of it, man, because, like, creativity, I feel like, but it's something about the energy of the collaboration that I feed off of, right? It really just gets me inside. Like, I, I love sitting and just reading and sitting and just writing, but there's something so powerful about being able to hash out ideas with somebody that you respect and whose creativity, you know, you, the energy you build off of. It's church, man. It's, you know, it's nothing like it. It's, it's church. church, bro. It's church. It, you well, said it in the first five minutes of talking, right? It's you, you recognize something spiritual in that moment when, when your aunt came running down the aisle, it's church. When, when, when you're in that room and something happens, whether it's, you know, getting the right idea or getting the right shot. It's, it's, yeah. it's that it's those parts of the universe that we can't explain. It's church. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Last question. We asked this of everybody parallel universe, Logan, right? Multiverse mm -hmm. Logan. You didn't, you're not creating film. You're not it. You're not an actor. What is parallel universe Logan doing? right now you know uh maybe there's there's this you know the, the version of me that didn't get shied away from law when i went to to you know work mm -hmm. with my aunt so maybe there's a version of me that's you know litigating cases and being a defense attorney like i feel like i wanted to be i would want to be a defense attorney or a civil rights attorney i'd probably be prepping my political career i'd probably be meeting with a, the risk assessment managers and being like what from my past could stop me from becoming a senator? I love you know it. What I mean, I'd probably be having that meeting. Oh my God, Senator yeah, Cole! I'd probably be thinking about running for office and being like, "How can I prevent whatever I did in the '90s from coming to light?" <laughs> I, I love that in this parallel universe, you're not even worried about like you. You skipped over all the reasons to get into politics. It's like, I don't want to, I don't worry. It's not about helping people. It's not about like community change. It's no, like, it is. how can it I is. acquire like, political like, power, but not be fucked up by my past? To, to help all my friends be rich. 
help a few people along the way. Immediately into corruption. But what will stop me from that? Something from that. I was about to say you should pursue it now. You should run for, you know, uh, uh, LA City Council, but. But uh, now I know you just do it for the power. Yeah, I would do it to be drunk off the power to make people do what I tell them. Yeah, so in you this parallel universe, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm drunk with right. power on set. Uh, it's all about being drunk with power, no matter where you can find it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Looking back, does the version of you that's writing that poem in in his room at twelve? What does he think of? The considerably much, much, <laughs> See, I was much older version. Thinking about it now, you okay. brought me back to back to earth. I think that uh, I think about my mom. You know, my mom passed uh, like six years ago, and yeah. I remember being so proud. That, you know, I remember like, you're gonna get me, bro. You're taking me down so many roads and I'm just like super reflective and stuff. But I, I think about like Good. how excited I would be to show my mom something I did and how proud I'd be like, hey, mom, look at this, mom, look at this, look at this. And how proud she would be telling me my terrible poetry was good and that I was actually talented. I would, you know, I think that version of me would be like, hey, mom, I think I'm doing all right. I think it's a pretty good I think it's a pretty good And I'm still going. I'm still going. So, yeah, I think that's that would be. I think I would have like a little my idea moment. Yeah. I'm doing it, my Yeah. Sorry, man. Damn. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> no, oh I'm doing God. it too. I'm crying too, man. Um Yeah, I was I mean, I I am um, you know, I didn't get to know your mom that well. Few times that I did. I am confident yeah. that she man, is I hope you're proud of yourself. fully aware a grown man crying. Been... <laughs> I am. I love you, man. Come on. I love like you too, I wouldn't bro. I love you too, bro. Like I wouldn't let this happen yeah no come on i just i appreciate that you feel safe enough bro, here to do this this is you're the white open winter, man. stop it oh. i'm gonna need a drink now like if i didn't have to still work i'd be going to the bar right now like thank you alan for making me need a cocktail Thanks so much for listening. Again, I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. You can find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. We teach people to be better problem solvers at their work and in their communities. So if you want to work with us, please check us out and send us an email. I can be reached at alan, A-L-L-E-N, at buildmo.com, B-U-I-L-D-M-O.com. Breadcrumbs was an experiment that we at Building Momentum did during the pandemic, like a lot of us did. We thought podcasts were the right answer. So if you think it was, hop on Apple Podcasts, hop on Spotify, give us a like, give us a subscribe, give us five stars, and shoot me an email and let me know that you want to hear more. If you like it and if we get some subscribers, we'd love to keep producing it. Again, this is a show all about people's weird and interesting and personal journeys into their professional lives. Thank you.